Well, a couple of weeks ago, actually you may recognize the first part of uh, the New Testament reading from our sermon a couple of weeks ago, where we talked about the commissioning of Paul, actually at the time his name was Saul, and Barnabas to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles out into the larger world. They prayed over them, they sent them out, and they immediately headed to the island of Cyprus. So I want to just show you a quick look at what, uh, where they were and what they were doing. So if you look at the top right over here, you can see Antioch. I know it may be a little small, but where the arrows start is Antioch. And they went down to Seleucia, which was the port, and they sailed to Cyprus, where they went from Salamis on one side to Paphos on the other. Now, Paul and Barnabas are going to continue on. Uh, This actually, we're looking here at, uh, you can see Syria and Jordan and Israel. And then above is modern-day Turkey. So that's where they were headed. And a lot of these places, actually, you can still visit and see some of the different things that the apostles may have seen on their missionary journeys. It's very cool. So uh, you also notice, this is just for fun, that they left a place called Antioch, and then they, at almost the furthest extent of their missionary journey, right at the top of the screen there, you see they also went to another Antioch. There's a reason for this. The the great ruler of the Seleucid Empire was uh, Antiochus. And he loved naming cities after himself and after his dad. And, you know, the dad kept naming the kids Antiochus and on and on and on. So there's like a million Antiochs out there. Just that's for free. But this is where they were headed. And it was, in some ways, a pretty ambitious journey to make. Because remember, there are no cars There are no trains, there are no airplanes to get anywhere that they want to go. They're not wealthy, so they probably don't even have pack animals or a horse or a mule or somebody to ride on on this journey. They walked everywhere except for where they took the boat from uh, from and to Cyprus. So this took several, this took a couple of years for them to go out and do all of this ministry. Now, it looks like they just kind of blazed right through Cyprus. We're going to catch up with the story here. Uh, The two of them, in verse 4, Barnabas and Saul, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, and John was with them as their helper. And they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. That's what we know about most of the ministry that Barnabas and Saul did on the island of Cyprus. But then we find they encounter something that maybe they hadn't expected. It's, It's hard to say what exactly their expectations would have been. They'd been sent out by their church. The Holy Spirit had spoken to the congregation and said, send Saul and Barnabas out to tell the Gentiles about me. And everyone was really excited. They laid hands on them. They prayed. They probably had a big departure ceremony. And they get to the island and they start to minister. And we don't get any sense of how successful their ministry is until the proconsul on the island, the Roman governor on the island, hears about their ministry. And he says, I want to know more. So that suggests they're probably making waves at the very least. Because often, you know, the guy in charge is the last person to hear about what's actually going on. But it's so disruptive in some way, good or bad, that the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, says, I want to find out what's going on. He calls 
Paul, uh, uh, Saul and Barnabas to himself. And I, I, Paul, I know I keep switching between Saul and Barnabas. The good news is that in this passage, we're going to stop calling him Saul. He's going to become Paul for the rest of his time in the book of Acts, for the rest of his life. Uh, most likely the reason that Paul's name is changed here is because Saul is his Jewish name and Paul is the name he goes by in the Greek world. Not least because Saul means something not very nice in Greek. So uh, one commentator I wrote said he was getting himself out of the way because if someone named Saul came and started talking to you about another way, people would probably laugh and not be able to get over that your name was Saul. I'm not going to interpret it for you right now because it's not very nice. But uh, that's one of the reasons uh, Saul begins to go by Paul. And what an interesting thing. What a powerful thing. Paul, in service to God, was willing to give up something of his old identity. Right? Your name's a pretty important thing, isn't it? Now, you may love your name. You may not love your name. But whatever it is, it's not something that you would just give up for no reason at all. It's disconcerting when people call you by something other than your name. Paul's willing to give it up for the sake of the mission. So the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, hears about them, and he summons them. And we find out also that at Sergius Paulus's court in Paphos, on Cyprus, he has a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet. Acts is cheating for us a little bit here and telling us what we should think about this guy. False prophet. His name is Bar-Jesus. That's kind of a strange name, isn't it? That word bar means son of, so, and Jesus is actually, uh, you can also translate that as Joshua. So son of Joshua, son of Jesus, which means son of salvation. There's a sort of hidden irony there, isn't there? Because we're finding out this is not a good man, and yet he is appearing as the messenger of salvation to Sergius Paulus and to all the people around him. And he's earned something of a reputation. You don't make it to the proconsul's court without having some substance in one way or another, or at least convincing everyone around you that you're somebody that ought to be listened to. Now, when Paul and Barnabas appear before Sergius Paulus, uh, Bar-Jesus, who also goes by Elymas, says, you, know, you don't want to listen to these guys. They don't know what they're talking about. They're bad guys. We don't know exactly how he badmouths Barnabas and Saul. We just know that he does. It says, Elymas opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Well, let's back up for a minute here. Maybe you've had an experience in your life, sort of like Barnabas and, and Paul, Barnabas and Saul, whichever one we're using at the moment, and you have been called to some sort of ministry or some sort of work in your life. When I was in seminary, uh, we were training to be pastors. Uh, the degree program that I was a part of, that's what it was for, to become a pastor. And oftentimes we would say, well, you know, we're, we're training for ministry. And one of my professors would say, I don't ever want to hear you say that. I thought, well, why not? He said, because you are implying that you are training for ministry, and everyone else is doing something different. 
And the ministry of God's people doesn't just belong to the clergy or the elders or the deacons or the the volunteers who stand up front and are noticed. The ministry of God belongs to all of his people. We are together the body of Christ, if you remember the children's message from last week. And every single person is a minister of Jesus Christ, if we belong to Jesus Christ in the first place. So you, God has a call on your life, whether you are an elder or a deacon or a pastor or someone who uh, isn't in any office in the church. That's what pastor, elder, deacon, these are the offices of the church. It doesn't matter if you're in an office or not. You are called to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we all do that in different sorts of ways. Some of us are wonderful speakers, and we speak to people. Some of us are wonderful servants, and we serve people. Some of us are really insightful. These are all gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we bring insight to the church. Someone says, I have this great idea, and somebody else who has this gift of wisdom and insight says, have you considered you know, some of these other aspects that I think you may have lost? Or somebody saying, I don't know that God could ever use me in that way. And someone has a gift of encouragement and they come up and they say, yes, you can. Because God has filled you with his Holy Spirit for ministry. You are a minister of the gospel. We need all of these things in the church. It's too much for any one person alone. Did Jesus do his ministry alone? I mean, there's no way, if, if we had ranks, like if, if the Christian church was the army or something like that, and we had privates through five-star generals, Jesus would clearly be the five-star general or the president given all of the orders. He is clearly at the top of the pyramid, but Jesus himself gathered 12 disciples around him, and he sent them out on ministry, and he had them help him in his ministry. We are all called to be ministers of the gospel in whatever way God has gifted us to do. And when we get that call, there are two things that usually happen. First, we have an emotional uh, reaction to that. Sometimes it's excitement. Sometimes it's terror. It might be anything in between. But we have this emotional response, and it, it galvanizes us into something, into action, into training, into gathering help and encouragement. But whatever it is, we have a response to God's call in our life, and it's, it makes us move in some way, shape, or form. That's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens is it gets hard. You experience that? I would love to, you know, just bless my family. I'd love to run a VBS. I'd love to, you know, serve at the church. And then all of a sudden, you are, we look at our calendar and we're like, I can't do any of that. There's no room for that in my life. Or maybe there are other people in our lives who say, oh, you can't do that. You know, you That's not God's call for you in your life. And sometimes we do need to hear that, don't we? That's part of why we have a church. But sometimes there are people like Elemis who are just standing in the way and saying, nope, I'm just going to oppose you. I'm just going to get in your way. Sometimes it's discouragement. You start off and you are being faithful. You're doing everything that God has called you to and nothing is happening in response. I love the call of Ezekiel, the prophet, back in the Old Testament. Uh, I had to write a paper on this for my ordination in ECO, and I thought it was an interesting thing that they chose uh, to make me write a paper on. But when God called Ezekiel, God said, okay, Ezekiel, 
I'm going to give you a message. You're going to speak it to the people, and they're probably not going to listen. Thank you, Lord. That sounds like a really fulfilling ministry. I'm so excited. All he had was opposition throughout his whole ministry. But God did say something to Ezekiel that I think was really important too. He said, whether they listen or not, they will know that a prophet has been among them. He says, your ministry, even if it feels fruitless today, will be fruitful in the future. Because no one will be able to say, I never knew. Why didn't you tell me, God? God says, I sent you Ezekiel. Why didn't you listen? God calls us to something. And we head out in obedience and, and we find that there's something in the way. There's something in the way. That's what happened to Barnabas and Saul. Elymas the sorcerer opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. What do we do when that happens? Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas. So here's the first thing we need to know. If we are going to overcome these obstacles and this opposition, the Holy Spirit is the power that will get us there. And the Holy Spirit has been active throughout this entire passage. Remember, at the very beginning, Barnabas and Saul, they're all, the, Antioch, the church in Antioch, they're praying together and worshiping together and fasting together. And the Holy Spirit says to them, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul for, to the work to which I have called them. The Holy Spirit spoke and, and said, I am commissioning them, I am sending them. So they fast and they pray and they place their hands on them and they send them off. They're going in the power of the Holy Spirit with the backing of the church. How important is that? When we get into, we run into these obstacles, something happens that makes us think, I don't know if I can go any farther. I know the temptation is to say, well, God must not want me to go that way. Otherwise, he would, have, he would have cleared the path, right? He would have made it easy to get where I'm going. Maybe we don't think of it exactly that way. He would have made it easy, but that's often how we behave, isn't it? We, we think, okay, God wants me to do this, and so we, we start going that way. We find that it's hard, and our interpretation is, well, you know, obviously that's not what God wanted me to do. Because if he wanted me to go that way, you know, he, he, it wouldn't be so hard. Does that match with, like, the whole Bible? Think about every single story. There's no story in the Bible where a person lives an easy life following God. Not a single one. There are some stories where the only thing people get back are hardship. Jesus, there were a couple of people who approached him, and one of them said, hey, Jesus, you know, I really want to follow you. And Jesus said, hey, you know, birds of the air have nests and the foxes of the field have dens, but I'm homeless. Are you sure? Saying, it's going to be hard. Are you ready for that? I think God is perfectly clear that he has not called us to an easy life. And I hope you find that encouraging this morning. Because do any of you have hardship in your life? Anybody at all? Yeah, probably. And it's not because you are bad or wrong. Sometimes we make choices that contribute to hardship in our life, 
But just because we have hardship doesn't mean we're living outside of God's plan and purpose for us. If that's what it meant, then Jesus wouldn't have been the Son of God because he died on a cross for crying out loud. God didn't call us to an easy life. There's a a movie, Miracle, about the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team that won the Miracle on Ice. And at the beginning of the movie, you know, they're selecting the coach. And, you know, Kurt Russell's in the movie, and he's a hockey coach, so you're pretty sure it's going to be him. And uh, as they're trying to select the coach, uh, Herb Brooks, the coach's name, uh, says, you know, you can't beat the Soviets in the way that you're doing it right now. You need an entirely different strategy. And everyone looked at him like he was crazy because the Soviets hadn't lost a hockey match in years and years. They were the best team in the world, bar none, and it wasn't close. And somebody said, well, that's a heck of a goal you got there, Herb. You really think you can beat the Soviets? And he said, well, I want to do it in part because it's hard. Because it's the mountain to climb. It's, there's no achievement without sacrifice. I love that moment. Everyone looks at him like he's crazy because he wants to do something so difficult. And he looks at them like they're equally crazy. You mean you don't want to do that? That's the life that God calls us to. There's no miracle on ice without the team and Herb Brooks' willingness to work hard for it. To work harder than anyone else for it. Just because something is hard, just because it makes our lives more difficult, just because it hurts, is not a trustworthy indication that God doesn't want us to go that way. It could be just the opposite. And Paul and Barnabas were equipped for that. Because not only had they heard the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, this is where I'm supposed to be, the church that they were a part of said, we hear that too and we are sending you out. And no matter how hard it gets, don't give up. We are praying for you. We are encouraging you. We are loving you. We are supporting you. Go be all that God wants you to be. Can we have that kind of relationship with each other as well? where we look into each other's lives and say, you are so gifted in this, and it's not an accident. And how can I encourage you and push you on to use that gift so that when the Lord comes back and you give an account of your life, he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. I have people in my life, we have those sorts of relationships. We know each other well enough. We trust each other deeply enough. We are following Jesus closely enough that we can speak those words into each other's lives. I hope you have that too. And if you don't, I'd love to talk to you this week. I'd love to help you find it. When opposition comes up, we need the Holy Spirit to remind us of our call to say it's okay when it's hard. And then there's something else we need. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. Paul's subtle, isn't he? You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Actually, it's interesting. Uh, in the ESV translation, it says you're full of villainy. I love that. That is awesome. You're full of villainy. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Have any of you ever spoken to somebody like that before? I have not. I 
hope I never will. I have no desire to have that sort of conversation. But the Holy Spirit has allowed Paul to see exactly what is going on in Elemis' life. The Holy Spirit has given Paul wisdom and knowledge and understanding. That's we're gonna. He's got a lot of uh, mean words in here, uh, but he says you are a child of the devil, and you're the devil. Uh, when we use this word diabolos in Greek, devil, it has the connotation of slander. You are a slanderer, Jesus. Uh, uh, Actually, now my mind is blanking, but there's another moment in the New Testament uh, where uh, somebody uses the same language. You, know, you, are, you, are a, you are sons of the devil. You don't care about the truth. He is a liar, and everything he says is a lie. And Paul is turning this back to Elemas. You are a liar. So you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord. Uh, Again, ESV, I think, has a more helpful translation here, and this is why we read that Micah passage. It says, As for me, Micah 3, beginning in verse 8, As for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Sounds like what Paul is doing. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel who despise justice and make crooked the things that are straight. It's the same language in both Micah and Acts in the ESV. You make crooked all that is straight. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. As I said, one of these words is translated elsewhere as villainy. And it has the sense of you are a con man. And that's what you're trying to do here. Basically, we, we can sort of build up what's happening by reading between the lines. Elemis has got his position at court, and he doesn't want to lose it. And he will do whatever he can to hold on to it, including bend the truth, distort the truth, twist the truth. And Paul sees it, and by the Holy Spirit, he calls it out. When we come against opposition, we need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to understand where it's coming from and to name it for what it is. We do that for ourselves so that we don't start thinking, oh, you know, this, this person is right about me or this situation means I'm not strong enough or I'm not powerful enough. We need this insight from the Holy Spirit to say, no, everything that I told you was true really is true. God really has called you to this. God really has equipped you for this. Going back to the Holy Spirit-filled people in the church saying, church, things are not easy right now, and I need you to encourage me and tell me that I am where I'm supposed to be, or I need you to call me back. And by the Holy Spirit, the church says, yes, be faithful. You are exactly where God has called you. The first thing we do when the opposition comes is run to the Holy Spirit and say, what is the truth of what's happening here? Then here's the second thing, and this one's going to take <laughs> some nuance. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And so it happened. Now, is God giving us blanket permission to go out to all of our enemies and say, blind, and shut them up that way? I don't think so. I think what's actually happening here is uh, 
Elemis is a spiritual predator. Get it? Because Elemis is denying the truth in favor of a lie that brings Elemis what he wants. He is preying on Sergius Paulus. And Paul sees and he understands what's going on. And he invokes God's power to break the power of Elemis. And that's exactly what happens. And so I think what we want to take out of this passage here is that when we say, I don't know where the strength will come from to get over this obstacle, to take care of the people who are holding us back, we turn back to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, I need power. I need strength. You know, Paul runs into opposition a lot in the book of Acts. But this is one of the only or very few times that he actually performs a punitive miracle where he punishes somebody by the power of the Holy Spirit. Other times, Paul sometimes gets shouted down. Sometimes Paul gets thrown in prison. Sometimes there's a situation that's coming up quickly here in the book of Acts where Paul and Barnabas are stoned and limp out of town. I don't think this is a power, uh, again, to get our way all the time. But instead, it is a power to protect the vulnerable. Because what I see when, when Paul gets stoned or when Paul ends up in jail, it's the people that he's preaching to that put him there. They are rejecting the gospel, and there's no one to protect. But in the case of Sergius Paulus, he is being deceived, and God will pull him out of that. And God makes power available to Paul to do exactly that. And we can ask the Holy Spirit for power too. We can ask the Holy Spirit, will you give me strength to endure? Will you help me make it from day to day? Will you give me wisdom to understand? Will you work a change in the hearts of the people that I'm dealing with? Will you look into my heart and see if there's anything hidden and broken in there that's making this worse? Would you be my strength? Paul calls on the Holy Spirit to make Elemis blind for a time. There's one last thing before we leave here. There's mercy in this. Do we know of anyone else who opposed Jesus and was made blind for a time? Paul. Paul was an enemy of Jesus Christ. He went from church to church, gathering people up, throwing them in jail, beating them, until one day he was on the road to Damascus to do more of the same, and he met Jesus on the road. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul has no answer. And when Jesus disappears from the road, Paul can no longer see. And he's led by the hand, just like Elemas, into the town where God sends another Christian to him who removes his blindness. And Paul becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. With all these awful things Paul has to say about Elemas and with how much Elemas deserved every single one of them, I think Paul and the Holy Spirit didn't give up hope 
that one day God could change his heart. I think that's the more important thing here. There is no one so far gone that God would give up on them, that God couldn't save them. Sometimes the people who appear to be the farthest gone are the ones who are most ready to encounter Jesus, just like Paul on the road to Damascus.